I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. <laughs> How are Long you? Long time to talk. <laughs> I know. This These are going to come out like a week or two from each other, but we totally just... Uh, recorded two episodes in two days so i'm yeah. i'm happy to be seeing your face this much honestly it's great yeah it's it's good it's good to be back at this um it's it's kind of fun to be talking about things that are past tense relevant at the moment yes yes so, <laughs> um i'm pretty excited about about getting it digging into today's topic because it's archived it's not like it is. Threat. Yeah. So I I think it makes sense to introduce the topic and then introduce our guest. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the 1776 uh, project, which commission. is a retaliation commission project report, whatever. Michael Ferris wrote it, uh, <laughs> which is like directly in like the conservatives response to the 1619 project thing. If you're not caught up on the history of this, Hannah Nicole Jones wrote the 1619 project in collaboration with the New York times and other journalists. And it's talking about the origins of the American history of racism and starts with 1619 being the, the first year an African uh, enslaved person was brought to the United States. And so it traces, you know, everything back to that. And the Trump administration basically was like, this is, you know, and actually like a lot of other public historians also came out against it because it, it put painted America in a negative light in their opinion. And he's <laughs> um, like, yeah, no, we've never done anything wrong in this country. I'm sorry. Like, I am perfect. We are, we've I'm always like, been perfect and good. I have not. I have, it's like the, that that uh, that meme. I am perfect, and I have never done anything wrong in my life, Father. Yeah, yeah. So they they were threatening to put this out as and make it part of like educational requirements in schools, and it was up for all of a fucking day before it's... the Biden administration took it down, which is so great. <laughs> But we wanted to dig into it, and uh, we have a very special expert guest here today uh, to talk about it. Dr. Rachel Coleman, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So I, <laughs> you officially have more history PhDs on this podcast than were involved in creating this 1776 commission, <laughs> um, because the number <laughs> was zero. <laughs> so I, I have my PhD in U.S. history from Indiana University, and I actually was homeschooled K through 12, so that's how I know Karen and Eve is through some of these different alumni networks. And I actually wrote my PhD uh, dissertation on the history of evangelical ideas about children and education. So it's a whole lot of this that is relevant to me, not just because I studied U.S. history in more depth than Michael Ferris 
or, or these other individuals have, but also because I actually studied this sort of thing they try to do in terms of education and how they've viewed children and the role of education in shaping children um, over the course of the 20th century. And Michael Ferris does pop up on several occasions in my dissertation, as does Betsy DeVos and sort of this entire idea of, of how education should should approach shaping children. So there's there's so much that's that's relevant to all of this. And so when Kieran asked if I'd be willing to to come on a podcast and talk about this, I was I was very excited. Well we saw you had written a I mean, we always have wanted to have you on here before and we wanted to like not <laughs> we've been talking about waste, it for years. We we've we've wanted to not waste your time on something that was, you know, fairly minor and this felt really significant and also just in terms of like it's the culmination of of a lot of Ferris's life work but also you wrote a particularly salient Facebook post about this a couple days ago you want to maybe chat a little bit about what you wrote there so one of the central problems I have with the 1776 project is the way that the document they created tries to portray the founders ideals as as the most important definitive thing about the history of our country, rather than the tension between those ideals and the reality being sort of the foundational piece. I mean, and there's many different ways to look at U.S. history, but one way to look at it is that there were these lofty ideals that were not realized and that U.S. history has been group after group latching onto those and saying, hey, wait a minute, when it says, you know, all men are created equal, that means me too. That means also me. And trying to expand these ideals beyond white men with property. Well, just like trying to make it, make the reality match the, the ideals that have been presented. Right. So, I mean, these are lofty ideals. It's just that they didn't actually live up to them. And that's something that the 1776 project really, really glosses over. It's like, it even says in it that, you know, the founding fathers sowed the seeds of the abolition of slavery and, and things like that. The reality is that they actually, the founding fathers were extremely conflicted about Slavery, and so this is what I read about in, in the Facebook post. Eve is and um, Kieran are referencing the founding fathers were very aware that there was a disconnect between their rhetoric of liberty and and freedom and justice and their practice of slavery. And so even founding fathers that were slaveholders tended to view slavery as a moral evil. In some cases, they viewed it as an evil because they saw it as evil for white people. So Thomas Jefferson, for example, wanted to have a nation of freeholding. Um, white farmers, small family farms, and felt that, you know, slavery sort of like corrupts that sort of utopian vision he had of of it just being a country of, you know, small businessmen, farmers. If anybody wants to read up on that, it's it's in his notes on the state of Virginia. So so it's, it's, they were very conflicted about it, but they didn't end slavery. So what I talked about in, in my post is actually, I have an ancestor, my Great, 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 great grandfather, William Cravens, lived in Virginia and he opposed slavery. And he was born in 1766. He did not fight in the revolution himself, but his father-in-law was very involved with him in his anti-slavery efforts there in Virginia, uh, was actually a colonel in the American Revolution. And they were involved in a Methodist society that uh, purchased and freed enslaved peoples. And they wrote all these documents where they drew on the Declaration of Independence even to argue against slavery and to argue that all men are created equal includes black people. And they, so they're, the founding documents and ideals were extremely important in, in what they 
in what they were articulating and their reasons for opposing slavery in Virginia in the 1790s and 18-aughts and uh, 1810s. But by 1820, Virginia had become so uh, antagonistic towards abolitionism that my ancestor left and moved to Indiana and, and um, took much of his family with him, as well as some of the people that they had freed over the years to help them leave Virginia because the climate had become so toxic to that. So where you had before, you know, some of these ideals and this idea that there, that slavery is this thing you should be conflicted about, by the time you get to the antebellum period after 1820 and, you know, going to the 1830s, 40s, 50s, the idea that slavery was a positive moral good became dominant in the U.S. South. And they, it was no longer like, Oh, yes, we understand that, you know, this is kind of an iffy thing, but like, how do you fix it? Instead, it was like, no, this is good. You know, black people are better off enslaved, etc. There's a whole theological argument that developed around that time period where it went from slavery historically had been a way of paying off debts. You worked to a certain point and then you were free. It was not about like you know, your identity as a human being did not, was not tied to this. It was a temporary thing. And so chattel slavery, race-based chattel slavery was a really new development that, um, you know, be, in it was so fundamental to the economic stability of the United States as they were trying to establish themselves as an independent nation you know, uh, after the revolution and they developed this like theological argument around the, the curse of ham to justify to themselves that this was God's will for the, the order of races. It was so like, it was a natural order concept that became, um, widely promoted and, and accepted. Right. So that and that was all part of creating this justification for slavery. So it was no longer like no longer seeing slavery as being in conflict with these founding principles, but instead creating a, a positive case for it. And yes, the, the curse of Ham, this idea that, you know, that black people are as the descendants of Ham, uh, according to, you know, according to them, um, were actually cursed to serve the descendants of Japheth, which they said were were, you know, light-skinned people, Anglo-Saxon people, etc. And so it was actually God's created order. Um, and all, there were all sorts of, you know, extremely racist ideas in there too about ability to care for oneself and claims that the, you know, the white slave owners were taking better care of these people than they would have, these people would have been able to take care of themselves. Um, and, and just claims that slaves were better off even than, than workers in Northern factories. I mean, it was this whole actual case for slavery that they were making that was new. The the idea of like, they're better off here because we're converting them to Christianity than they, you know, they're, they're not pagans in Africa anymore. We're bringing them to the light, like religiously. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a, a, a net gain for them. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's just so many like layers of of bullshit, you know, theology and science that uh, like pseudoscience that are used to, you know, assuage their guilt over like continuing their economic dependence on enslaved labor. And, and to actually to follow up on another part of what you said too, Eve, uh, race based chattel slavery was new. Slavery as it had existed. Had, had, you know, looked much like Eve described, or or sometimes, you know, someone was enslaved, but their kid wouldn't necessarily be enslaved, um, or they were enslaved, but, you know, everyone's 
of a similar race or ethnicity. So it also, you know, was easier to move from being enslaved to not enslaved because you didn't have a physical marker setting you apart. But race-based chattel slavery was so completely different. So these, you know, claims like, oh, well, slavery has always existed. It's a 1776 project. So slavery had always existed. And, you know, it's horrible, but it always had. And that the West um, sowed the seeds for the elimination, you know, the, of slavery for people to, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason that that happens, that slavery was recognized as a horrific thing and then abolished over time in, in various ways was that the West created a system of slavery in race-based chattel slavery that was more horrific than any system of slavery had been before. It was yep. utterly horrific. And I think it's important to realize that 90% of the people who were kidnapped in Africa and transported across the ocean died. They didn't, you know, like live to marry, well, you know, to the extent that they were allowed to form partnerships and have children, mm-hmm. et cetera. That, they, most of them were literally worked to death in horrific conditions. And this was so, so horrific that that's why you started to have an abolitionist movement and people like William Wilberforce and getting, you know, uh, abolishing slavery in England in 1833. It was because the West had created a version of slavery that was so horrific that as soon as it really took a look at it, you know, it was shocking. And so I think we have to understand that that is what the South was defending. Yeah. And even as places like England were banning slavery, the U.S. South was creating a defense of slavery that was far more, um, you know, far more sweeping than you'd ever seen. You know, it's not just being like, well, slavery is unfortunate, but it happens. It was like God said it should be this way. And so that it's one of the things I talked about in my Facebook post is that my my ancestor that I mentioned, uh, his grandson, James Addison Cravens, was actually in U.S. Congress in 1865, and he voted against the 13th Amendment, which would have, well, did abolish slavery. He voted against it. And when I first came upon that fact in researching my ancestor, I I was kind of taken aback because his grandfather was quoting the Declaration of Independence to argue that slavery was evil and should be abolished. And here he is voting to keep slavery and arguing that they should still have slavery. And he was from Indiana. So I think it's very important to emphasize that even in the North, you know, people listened to what the Southerners were saying, and they generally didn't want to deal in this, what was going on in the South. They're like, let them do their thing. You know, we'll do our thing here in the North. There wasn't positive sentiment towards Black Americans in the North that was at all widespread um, any more than in the South. The Civil War was fundamentally about slavery but neither side wanted to free the slaves. So, but by the time you got there, like things had been cemented in a way that, that there wasn't the same moral conflictedness over slavery that you had at the the founding. And, And one thing that I think is important to remember is that the founding fathers believed that slavery was this moral evil and in conflict with ideas of liberty. Um, and obviously, it's kind of a painting with a little bit of a general brush there, because, you know, individual founding fathers had their own ideas. But we're, in general, not a monolith. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But this was a widespread sentiment that this was a problem, but they didn't get rid of it. And that that was a, such a huge failing that they recognized that this was a problem. They didn't get rid of it. And that window closed and it became yeah. cemented. And so when we talk about it as being sort of foundational to our country, that's what we're talking about. We're not saying that every founding father was out there praising slavery, but they didn't get rid of it. And the result was this, this horrific disaster for our country, both for, you know, 
millions and millions and millions of enslaved black Americans, but also, you know, we had a civil war and the founding fathers could have done something different and, and they didn't. And so when we were reading through this last night, uh, I was with Eve and Karen, we were, we were reading through it. I, I kept reading these quotes that the 1776 commission has from various founding fathers saying that, that slavery was evil. And, and after each one, I stopped and I said, if only he were the president and could have done something about it. Every <laughs> single one of these people, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, all of these people were U.S. presidents. So, like, I'm sorry, but they didn't, and, and, and they owned slaves themselves. And freeing your slaves upon your death is not exactly the hero's way out, okay? No. Um, so because it almost it, never happens. Well, but also, on your death, like, way to make it so it's never going to actually, you don't really have skin in the game. Yeah, no, so no. It's, it's like, it's a two, yeah, it's a two for one punch in the, in the face because it's like, first, it's, you don't have skin in the game, you're a fucking coward. And two, those who are, you know, managing your state afterward, like, are, like, what guarantee do you have that they're actually going to fucking follow through with that? Right. So you don't, you don't have to be one to make sure it happens at all. So it's just that you can't look only at the aspirational rhetoric of the founding fathers and then act like that is the most fun, fundamental central thing to the American id without looking at all these conflicts and contradictions and things they didn't finish or, or fix and, and the horrors that followed because of yeah. their failure to live up to those ideals. Well, and like that is the whole thing with this too. They're they're always like, it's so bad that people are painting America in a bad light because we messed up once. And I'm like, once? It's really interesting because you're you're drawing this contrast between you know the ideals, the aspirational ideals communicated versus the the actual reality and how all of the friction that has continued since then around human rights issues in American history have been around trying to realize those ideals. One of the things I teach when I teach like American Lit One is I, I demand that my students for everything we read, look at what it contributes to American mythology, like this American sense of self and how like, does this match like the actual history? And, and it's the thing that, you know, always strikes me as I'm reading these early documents is the, there was a real knowledge of what was going on. There was a real knowledge of how bad this was. And this is, you know, what Rachel's talking about, like everybody knew how bad it was, but just like we have in our conversations today about, you know, let's just have unity the sense of personal responsibility was not there. And so it was kind of a, like, this is, this is objectively bad, but it's also not my job or like, I'm not, I can't do it. Can't do anything about it. And, and there's a like lulling yourself to sleep because you are contributing to the American dream in other ways. And that one, someone else can deal with. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of other things we have like that today. Like, climate change where it's like any one person can't fix it but it's bad and everyone sort of acknowledges it's bad but it doesn't nobody i i don't know i i think there needs to be an understanding of the extent to which people can be stuck in systems mm -hmm. but at the same time there are still people who can actually do something like all I, of these 
you know, presidents. So like, how do you navigate that? It's yeah. It's so frustrating. Like this is a complete sidebar, but this is kind of the frustrating thing about being active in politics is like, you're cut like if if I'm coming from the grassroots, which I am, and I'm like, okay, I know the things that we need to do in order to solve this problem. And you tell the legislators that, you tell city council that, you like work with everyone, and it still just fails. And it's really disheartening because you're like, but we could solve this. If only someone with the lever of power to do this thing did the thing, stuff would be easier, but we can't get to the point where the people with the power to do the stuff use the lever to do the stuff because reasons. Well, and this is why when Biden is calling for just like blanket statements of unity without any like adequate response to the gravity of what happened on January 6th and before, like, yeah. I, I'm sorry, you can't just reach across the aisle to someone who's just actively participated in sedition. Like there have right. to be consequences. We've we played this game after during reconstruction and after reconstruction, and it didn't work. And I, I also think it's important that, you know, what I was saying about, you know, systems and, and things like this isn't to suggest that change, you know, fixing this wasn't possible. Because for example, um in Virginia, that actually this is something I wish, I really wish that they taught Gabriel's Rebellion as the way, like, you know, you study in American history, you study the um, American Revolution, and then you study the Whiskey Rebellion, which is, like, totally random. A bunch of farmers in Massachusetts got upset about a specific tax that had to do with their corn whiskey, and so they based, did an armed rebellion against the government, and George Washington marched against them, and he said, you guys just go home. This is not how we fix these things. We did this whole thing so that we have the ballot box and you can go vote and change your taxes. Like you don't do armed responses. And they went home. But here's the thing. There's another rebellion that we don't teach that happened around the same time that I wish we would teach, which was Gabriel's rebellion in Virginia in 1800. And it was based on the ideals of the revolution. This ideals of freedom and, and of equality and these these um, enslaved Africans uh, in Virginia recognized the you know the, the tension here and they they wanted their freedom and so they came up with a plan that they were gonna they were gonna go and capture uh, James Monroe who was the governor of Virginia at the time and they were going to hold him hostage and bargain for their freedom of all enslaved persons in Virginia. And the plan ended up falling through due to weather. Uh, the roads all got flooded, and then, and then, unfortunately, um, one of the conspirators. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, I, I don't know, you know, how much hope this actually had of succeeding. But one of the conspirators went and talked, and it, it got to people who put, you know, then acted to make sure it didn't happen. And then they started hanging. It's <laughs> hung so many conspirators that the countries in Europe started getting like antsy about what was happening here. It looked really bad because it was really bad. And Thomas Jefferson was president at the time. He wrote to James Monroe and said, you gotta, you gotta stop hanging these enslaved peoples who were involved in this because you, you, you we look bad and then you can well, go read this letter. But, but what I want to emphasize. 
You told us you told us this last night, and that was the first time I'd ever heard of this. Right. Yeah. Why is this not taught? This should be taught just the way the other things are taught. Because what happened then was the Virginia legislature had an actual conversation about ending slavery because the question was whether it was too dangerous to have an enslaved population that could rise up and demand its freedom and kill white people, you know, the enslavers at any time, you know, it seemed dangerous. And so they actually considered abolishing slavery. And the plan was to um, deport, you know, the the freed Africans then uh, back to Africa, because it's none of these white people at this time, as conflicted as they were about slavery, believed that white and black people could live together. Um, I just, I just cannot just, they, they were, they were still more creative about these kinds of policy solutions since then, but keep going. It's just, it, but, but the point, the, the, the discussion literally was, should we end slavery? And they could have, they could have right then and there ended slavery. And there were people who wanted to do that. Again, not necessarily out of the goodness of their hearts. They were scared of another slave rebellion because they knew how terribly they were treating these people. So any claims later that like, oh, the slaves like being enslaved. I'm sorry. If they all like being enslaved, you don't have white people so terrified they start like banning slaves from learning to read because they're afraid they'll read the Bible or the Declaration of Independence and want to be free. Like, that's not what people who, you know, believe everyone they've enslaved are happy do. So what they ended up doing instead was banning enslaved persons from being able to learn to read. And a bunch of other restrictions on enslaved peoples, uh, more and more creating, you know, sort of a, a really, really powerful police state. But they also required white people to take their guns to church, which to me just speaks to how fucked up this all was. Because I'm sorry, the point was when we're off at church, we got to make sure that the enslaved persons aren't going to get their hands on our guns. And we had to be ready to go, like, put down a slave rebellion at the moment's notice, even on a Sunday morning. If you're going to church to worship God with a gun because you're afraid that the people that you've enslaved might try to get freedom and you might have to go shoot them, maybe ask questions. Like, it's yeah. just, I feel like this, this is like, this is the, like, I don't know. I just feel like that should be taught as as one of the arguments for gun control in this country. Like, yes. just, again, I didn't know this. I, I knew that this was a thing, but I didn't know, like, the context and the whole background. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Of course. Of course we're where we are today. Yeah. This would probably be a good time to talk about, like, homeschool history. <laughs> yeah. And but just to wrap this up, I just uh, – this specific point, I just – I really, really wish this was taught in, in class. It's, it's not taught – really, you know, even in, in regular schools or, or most places. And it's extremely important to understand that these conflicts over slavery during the time of the revolution and early republic were solved in a way that set, you know, solved in a way that set the country up for the antebellum period with its its resolute defense of slavery and ultimately a, a civil war. Whereas you know, in other places, they were able to end slavery, uh, often through gradual abolition, etc. And it, it just, I'm sorry, but the founding fathers left a mess. They just they did. did. <laughs> they really did. They kicked the can down the road and it didn't go great. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. And what's, what's funny is like, so reading through this PDF, there's just so many dog whistles we could literally spend an entire season on it but like mike ferris's whole the entire way that they 
and it's not just Mike Ferris, it's whoever the fuck is also on this commission. But like they explain the civil rights movement as it being bad because they were like colorblind laws should just be the law of the land we can't have people taking away rights and adding new ones all the time that's terrible and awful and so much of this is just like insecure white boy tears i said before the civil rights movement laws were colorblind what i mean was there a reason for the rights movement if right. Yeah. No, the entire like appendix three is literally just white cishet baby man tears into a coffee cup because he feels oppressed and doesn't like being called out for it. And instead is being like, well, identity politics is the worst thing and it is against freedom because we're giving certain people rights and not just being colorblind, like all is right and good in the world. And I'm... I Nobody just, was being colorblind before. That's why they had the. It just. It's so bad. Yeah. Okay. But so homeschool. Homeschool history, history here. <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, this was basically all from like all the textbooks I used in every lecture I've heard Michael Ferris give. Like, this is literally. Okay. The yeah. Let's like back up real on. fast. There was a tweet that was going around when this dropped. That was like, we need to like make sure this like disappears ASAP in order to keep it from trickling into homeschool <laughs> fundamentalist textbooks and education systems. And we're all like, <laughs> we're like 40 years too late, my man. Come on. Where do you think this so came I- from, dudes? <laughs> like it was, it was so frustrating. Cause I'm like, you're so close, except you have this backwards. It's not going to get to the homeschool community. And he was like, so- if I could say something, this is this is drawing a little bit on, on the work I did with my dissertation. The evangelical Christians were stalwart, fierce defenders of the public schools through World War II. And one of the reasons was there were a lot of children of immigrants, and they wanted to ensure they all went to public schools and got Americanized because they were very... Uh, you know, anti-immigrant in, in certain ways. So the public schools they saw as, as an Americanizing force, um, but also private schools up until then had typically been things like Catholic schools, and these evangelicals were extremely anti-Catholic. I mean, it, it's important to remember that John F. Kennedy being elected in, in 1960 was a watershed moment for U.S. Catholics because so many people like believed he was going to just report to the Pope. This anti-Catholicism yeah. was huge. So yeah. for all these reasons, these evangelical Christians were stalwart defenders of the public schools. What changed for them, and you, like this, this, I read a whole dissertation, so this is a bunch of different things. This but, is why we have you on the show. <laughs> one of the things that changed is that public school textbooks began com- including stories of people other than white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So you started having the stories of black Americans told. You started having textbooks with pictures of, of women being, you know, having jobs and not just being like, you know, helping Danny when he scraped his knee uh, at home. So... <laughs> Well, I mean, these te- I've seen some of the ones before. and there's, No, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's true. It's so true. Yeah. So the textbooks changed. And in fact, the um, evangelical Christians, many of them sort of freaked out and started arguing that this was what they called the religion of secular humanism. Oh, and, yeah. And in fact, they, so in the 1980s, when homeschooling began, 
initially, okay, it started in the 70s, and then the earliest homeschoolers were kind of left-leaning um, sort of uh, hippie types, just as a shorthand. Um, who believed part of the Back to the Earth movement in the 70s. Yeah, an alternative wow. education and the idea that, you know, you don't, don't want to, like, just have kids, like, chained in a classroom or whatever. You want to sort of free them and empower them. Per, like, actual educators and, like, people with, like, secondary degrees like who were doing this homeschooling right so what they would do is if a family wanted to homeschool they would actually usually they would go to the school district and they would tell the district that what they wanted to do and they would say here are my materials here's what i plan to do here are my credentials and i'll bring them back to be tested at the end of the year and and you can see how that goes and most school districts are like sure give it a shot i mean you know you clearly have things together you know what you're doing um go ahead but these new people who started to move into homeschooling, um, there, there's like a really fascinating book by Tim LaHaye called The Battle for the Public School that I'm not even. This is I the guy be... who wrote okay. those books you were thinking of. Same guy. Yep. Tim LaHaye, who wrote all the Left Behind books, also wrote a book called The Battle for the Public School, in which he argued that the public schools had stopped teaching phonics in order to prevent children from learning how to read, and at the same time, they had introduced sex education to hook all children on sex. So you would have illiterate, sex-addled children who would then all become communists. And that was the whole plan and point of public how horrible. schools. So <laughs> the the actual plan, like this book, this book reads like, like, addled conspiracy theories. I do not for the life of me understand how this book person became so famous for his left behind books. This must have really just been written by Jerry B. Jenkins because like his he can't yeah. he can't keep it together for a moment in this book. This this um <laughs> of the, the public schools. It's so bad. But he argues in fact that you know the public schools are basically communist atheist brainwashing factories. And a piece of this is that the textbooks have changed. They are including other stories. So um, the people who started to homeschool in the 1980s would go to their superintendents and say, I'm homeschooling. I own my child. God gave me my child. You can't tell me what to do. You're an atheist brainwashing factory. Bye. And the school districts were like, wait, wait, wait. Like, I don't think we can let that person do that. Can we let them do that? Like, say, so it actually <laughs> led to a crackdown on homeschooling because the school districts that had before been letting many people homeschool started to freak out. Because these were people who sounded like they were crazy people. So um, it, so it became uh, what, what one secular homeschooling advocate called the look over your shoulder time by the mid-1980s as schools mm -hmm. districts turned against the idea of homeschooling. And eventually you get the creation of homeschool statutes um, as a result of that. But um, I, I have to tell this story. Are you guys familiar with the Mozart case that Ferris argued? No. No. <laughs> this is the Michael Ferris. Okay. So Michael Ferris on this document. So okay. So there was this woman named Vicki Frost who lived in Tennessee. And she had read the battle for the public schools. Okay. And her friend, she had a friend who read it first and started talking her ear off about it. And they listened to Christian radio and listened to people talking about the same things about mm -hmm. public schools. So she started monitoring her kids' reading textbooks. And she found that her children's reading textbooks had stories about like alien invasions and mental telepathy, and, like, um, also, you know, all these different stories that she felt were evidence of secular humanism, clearly. And she wow. didn't want them reading textbooks that had stories where people had mental telepathy because they might learn how to do it. And the poor school board was like, 
are you actually saying this? Like they were so confused. <laughs> and, and she was like, this is all, you know, secular humanist religion being pushed on my kids. You can't, you know, they need to not use these textbooks. And these poor school district administrator was like, uh, I, I, I am, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church every Sunday. Like I am a fundamentalist Christian like you are. And he thought she was off her rocker because he, you know, he was in fact a professional school superintendent, you know, right. there's a certain level of you, you trust expertise or, you know, at least of why people write textbooks the way they do, you know? So yeah. she decided she wanted to, um, you know, contest this. And they ended up telling her, basically there ended up being a lawsuit. And at the time, Ferris was a lawyer with concerned women for America. And that group is what took Frost, Vicki Frost's case. And so Ferris argued and for isn't a that group a like a like grandchild of Phyllis Schlafly's work. Yes. Correct. Yes. There is and this stuff is all related. So so he argued against these books. He argued that the um story of like he started arguing that Goldilocks and um stories like Goldilocks and the Wizard of Oz were were secular humanism and and oh is that why my parents Goldilocks didn't want me watching Wizard of Oz? Yeah, I think it's, that's why I can watch it either. So it got so weird what he was arguing were evidence of like secular humanism and atheist brainwashing that <laughs> people really turned against him and it, he looked nuts. So the news coverage at the time is just absolutely rakes him over the coals because he sounds like a crazy person with his conspiracy theories about public school textbooks and they lost the case. And the judges in a series of cases in the late eighties found that exposing children to other ideas and viewpoints was in fact a good purpose of education and not in fact atheist brainwashing. And that it was okay if the textbooks have like mythology from different countries and not just Jack with his little red wagon. So, mm -hmm. so like all of this happened as a, as a view of like the public school curriculum being too multicultural, including too many different perspectives can't have that. And so this is part of where you get both Christian schools and homeschooling because they didn't want their kids exposed to other viewpoints. So it's really rich that he taught in the 1776 commission, which again, Ferris is one of the authors of argues that history shouldn't be used as propaganda in the classroom, which seems to be what they're arguing. But like literally this is the guy who like founded an entire university in order to try to get control what people learn. Yeah, to make education propaganda. Yep. Yes. Yep. King of the propaganda. And so that the whole homeschooling was was to isolate your children from other viewpoints and only well, teach them your version. And it just I mean, it's this is just like the the like logical culmination of the irony of all of our parents raising us to be critical thinkers and being yep. like, but not with our stuff. Right. Right. It's the whole like report really just needs to have a mirror held up to it because everything he describes that is bad is literally stuff that he has been doing for the last like 40 plus years and the things that he's been teaching and saying and advocating for it. I'm like, my dude, you are using education to rewrite history and present a viewpoint that you like and like you have problems with other people doing that because you're an insecure cishet white dude 
so the other thing that happens in this report is a lot, a lot, a lot of trashing of experts. And yes. I, I think that that has to be understood as, as a big piece of what goes on here. I actually had uh, a relative give me a, a biography of George Washington some years ago, and they said that it was the definitive work on George Washington because all the author did was spend 20 years reading through George Washington's papers and archives. So they clearly are the expert. And I looked this person up. They're not a historian. It's just like a person who went and read all George Washington's papers. And and this this is just a piece of that trashing of experts. And this like this idea that you don't you can just look at the original sources and that's it. Explain why that's a problem. So when you study history, one of the things you do is you study different ideas that historians have formulated over time and different interpretations of history over time. And you study the context of any given moment. And you don't just learn one version. Like oftentimes it's like there's multiple ways historians have looked at these things. But knowing that whole context allows you to understand the original sources. I One of the things that I've been doing with my um, this research I've been doing on my ancestor, the, who was uh, that anti-slavery activist in Virginia, William Cravens, he left a bunch of papers and I've been reading through them, but you don't, like there's so many things, you have to have the context to understand what it's even talking about. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble being more, more explanatory than that, but I would say the reason that people spend years studying history in graduate school to become a historian is you need to learn what other historians have written, how other historians have viewed history or even the, the different, um, like there, for, for example, well, let's give a random example. Mm -hmm. there, there's something called the Annals School of French historical thought. And one of the ways you look at it is you have on the top, you have the little waves. And those are the things people do, um, the smaller changes. And then in the middle, the, you know, the wall is like imagine water. It doesn't move as much. And that's where you have historical changes that are more cultural. And then in the bottom, you have the things that barely change at all. So that's things like your land, um, where you can have different kinds of agriculture and the way that it affects history. And so you study the Annals School in um, the academy because it's an interesting way of understanding history and talking about what is the role of the individual people, you know, as opposed to the historical processes they're embedded in. So if you look at Teddy Roosevelt, he can do things and has his own individual agency, but he's part of a greater, like, cultural piece at the time that you have to understand that to a certain extent we're all embedded in and so historians think about these things and it's not that they're told how to think but they're given different ways that different people have thought that are like they're important this sort of expertise is not something that is it doesn't mean nothing that you spend all this time studying it and it's just frustrating and, and i know Eve, you've got some things you want to add but the one thing i would note is arnold schwarzenegger said something on Facebook the other day, he got a vaccine, and everybody, a bunch of people were like, why'd you do that? Don't you know they're injecting you with who knows what? And he did this amazing screed where he said, if you want to know about bodybuilding, come to me. I'm an expert in bodybuilding, and I can tell you how to do bodybuilding. But I, that's because I've been studying that for years. If you want to know about vaccines, you listen to the experts. And he basically spends his whole time being like, how do you think that you could read enough stuff and know better than the scientists? Based on just like yep. reading some yep. articles. Yep. You can't. This is why we have experts. So trust them. And I just, it, it feels radical. Because the, thing that, the thing that this really just keeps reminding me of, it, it feels like a one-to-one -one correlation in terms of like how experts are treated and versus primary source materials out of context. And like your story about the George Washington biography just like deeply reminds me of my experience uh, taking a theology class in undergrad where I was introduced to reading the Bible in historical context 
as pieces of of a multi-century system of translation and genre and reaction to historical conversations and scribes adjusting things and, you know, mistranslations and, you know, political agendas moment to moment. And there's, there's an entire universe of scholarship there that impacts how you read the Bible in a way that is, you know, takes you know, takes all of that into account how we got it and where it came from. But you have this American evangelical impulse based on the like priesthood of the believer stuff from back in the Protestant Reformation that creates this, I don't need to be an expert as long as I can read this for myself. I don't need to know the context of any of this as long as I can read it for myself. And however I choose to interpret it is is just as valid as the experts. So there's this anti-intellectual anti-expert American idea of, you know, ha- approaching texts in particular. Yeah. And so when we see this document, <laughs> the one of the things that just like is rankling to me about this commission report is that there's no citations. There's a whole bunch of quotations None and there's nothing is fucking cited. And it's like, I'm sorry, the the fact that like you pulled this quote doesn't mean that I need to that I'm going to trust you that you are using it in the appropriate context that you're not just like you know proof texting a couple lines from a larger paragraph that argues the exact opposite of what you're trying to communicate here like yep. I teach I teach I teach freshman comp this is basic and you're not even doing it. And there was that one point when we were discussing last night when I came upon a, a Calvin Coolidge quote that I couldn't even figure out what it was talking about because it's so out of context. It's like, what was Coolidge even referring to? Yeah. You really need the context and you can't actually understand what he was. Yeah, it's just, it's full of these source quotes. And I think you're right that they are approaching history the exact same way. Just like they would argue with, um, you know, with the Bible, like you don't need all those like critical, what is that? Critical, there's a word with the Bible. Exegesis. people like scholars who do scholarship where they really are trying to look at you know what went on here or even understand sometimes if there were changes to the bible and translations or whatever there's a complete dismissal of any need to even acknowledge that scholarship because it's just like it's so scriptura you know and so they're doing the same thing here with these washington quotes and these lincoln quotes pulling them out of thin air it challenges it challenges their presuppositions like like going back to the bible stuff like the the reality is that like the epistles from paul like suggest that there might have been three or four different authors if you are looking at it in historical context Mm -hmm. and the mythology of paul as an idea gets you know damaged by that and so it's easier to reject that scholarship out of hand than to engage it and like adjust your layman's conversational level understanding of what you know, those, those epistles and those teachings mean. And I think this gets back to questions of how do you identify what is, what is fact or what is true, or even, you know, a lot of the problems we have in our country right now are related to the fact that there is no accepting of any common set of facts. Everyone, you know, has their separate set of facts. And I I really honestly feel that one of the reasons you've seen so much questioning of of COVID-19 guidance, including things like vaccines, among evangelical Christians is that they've already dismissed science in the area of young earth creationism. And Mm. if science is a young earth creationist science, you know, if all the scientists are engaged in this huge conspiracy to, to suppress evidence 
evidence of creationism, which is the claim, then it's not that hard to believe that all the scientists are using COVID-19 as a way to control the population. And, and it's just it's all this huge distrust of experts and a willingness to believe conspiracy theories whenever it is convenient. In the uh, so in the uh, appendix where they talk about schools, I think it's appendix four. One of one of the things that they mention specifically when they're talking about how like history should be taught is that civics and government classes should rely almost exclusively on primary sources. Oh, no. And then which, goes which on to say back to this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah, primary sources without selective editing also allows students to study principles and arguments unfiltered by present-day historians' biases and agendas. Unfiltered by anything except for your modern worldview and interpretation. <laughs> unfiltered by the context. I So I, I when I was in Indiana University, I taught history classes for a while, and I, you know, I had them read primary sources. That's actually very important. But you need the guidance and understanding of the background or, or you're just, you're, you don't get anything out of it. Like it's, you, yeah, it's a disrespect for expertise. It's really frustrating. It's very frustrating. Like when I was teaching myself con law and I had Michael Ferris's course or whatever, <laughs> because of course I did. I was also at that same time reading the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, just so I understood the context and Mike Ferris's curriculum didn't do any of that mike ferris's curriculum is just mike ferris's opinion as ordained by god he thinks and so i was just like like i can read the constitution i have memorized parts of the constitution i know where like i can do a constitution quiz and tell you roughly where things should be but like just reading the constitution doesn't give me any insight as to what was happening but then, but then i have another question which is who's picking Who's picking what excerpts are, what primary sources are being used? Because I could actually put together a pretty kick-ass collection of primary sources that includes things like, you know, Frederick Douglass's speech, what to the, the uh, uh, you know, what to the black person is the, the fourth of July. So, okay, that's, yeah. that's what it was. But he read it, he said it after, I believe it was after the, the Civil War, but still talking about that. But, like, I could put together, and Eve could put together a great collection of sources like that well, we we were talking last night about there's a there's a list there's a list of of like authors and and texts at the end of the original uh, portion of this report that um you know are like supposedly represent the American you know ethos of culture and media and 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 Rachel was like looking at it being like I don't understand like so many of these people like. They they're they're they proposed ideas or they had values that are counter to the stuff that's being put forth here, and I like kind of went through them and rattled off like all of the reasons you could twist each single person on this list to match the conservative agenda here, and noting like who's left out, who's not included in here, who like yep. who are the contemporaries of these authors whose names should be on this list if you were doing an actual comprehensive list, and. And they like really only picked people that they could easily twist to match their their priorities. Well, and I I would take this back to also something else I was mentioning uh, when we talked last night, which is the people fighting for freedom. Like we often focus on those groups in our classes because it is inspirational and because many of them created change. So you know, in the civil rights movement, the people who were were pushing. Um, 
you know, for change and freedom writers, et cetera, et cetera. But the people who fought against that change are just as much American and just as much part of who we are as a nation as the people trying to fix injustices and create change. So who at any moment are we picking as your quintessential American? Because at any yeah. moment you're going to have the equivalent of AOC and Ted Cruz in 1844. Like there's yeah. only one person and, and that's history is complicated and messy and interesting and fascinating. But I don't think that people like Michael Ferris like that. They don't want it to be yeah. that way at all. They want it to be straightforward and have all the answers, which are, of course, their answers, the end. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. But that is how my history books were. Uh, <laughs> let's talk for a second about Ferris's long game with this, because this like thing was not a shock to me it just seemed like the logical next step for ferris because this honestly the whole seemed point... like a little anticlimactic like this is it not did. as like, dramatic as i would have expected from him but yeah. again seeing as it like came out on literally the last day of the trump administration that makes sense well one thing i would note is uh betsy devos is i think part of this whole long game because she you know it's this whole set of conservatives who literally want to dismantle public education they mm. don't want there to be government-run public schools they mm. would rather this school choice ideal where everyone picks their own school off of a list of different like charter schools or private schools with vouchers and and thus, you know, they're trying to then get this this version of history. Then I guess would be taught in in. They're trying to encourage self like, Yes. Yeah. Exactly. They don't believe in the project of public education. Although I will note that some of what goes on in the 1776 commission, there the Texas Board of Education has a lot of control over textbooks in this country. And so, like every few years, when they change up who has to be included in textbooks, there's always a sort of a you know, a furor over it because it's always yeah. things like, you know, questionable things. But it is true that there are battles over what textbooks end up in our public schools. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the, the publication of Southern versus Northern editions of textbooks yeah. here? So I, I, I talked about this last night as well, but after the Civil War, um, the these public schools in the South created entirely different versions of history that they taught to their students, which were these idea of the lost cause with the, the abolitionists as troublemakers. And they, in their books, you know, it, enslavers were all good, kindly masters and enslaved people are, were all, you know, happy to be that way. And it was the Northerners that came in and sort of wrecked that. And so that's what they were teaching in their textbooks. But the textbooks in the North were not teaching that at all. They tended to gloss over slavery and then teach the Civil War as sort of an unfortunate spat between brothers who had since made up. And so you actually had textbook companies that had to publish two different editions of their textbooks, one for the South and one for the North. And I say had to publish, they chose to publish that way. Yeah. But they, you know, they couldn't have placed the, the textbooks that they created for the North you know, in these southern school districts, they did because they these schools, these states, they wouldn't accept those textbooks. So they, they had you had a situation where the kids, a child growing up in a school in South Carolina, would get an entirely different version of history than a child growing up in a school in New York State because they used different textbook editions that taught completely different versions of yeah. reality. And the one thing I would also add with regards to all of that, this went on for years. And years and years. And so I think we need to understand that history has always, there's always been battles over what is taught in our history textbooks. And that's where you started to have after the civil rights movement and after the inclusion of more and more different groups in the project of, you know, sort of the American public sphere, 
you had textbooks becoming more diverse, but you also had pushback against that, like the Texas Board of Education. Yeah. So there's always been arguments over that. And I think that's part of what the goal of this was, because, for example, wasn't there an executive order of some sort saying that the 1619 project couldn't be used in, in classrooms or something or an attempt it, it, to do it that? Tried, yeah, it tried to do that, which was like made me laugh a lot because I already had the 1619 project on my syllabus that semester. <laughs> I, I was like, hey, y'all, this is controversial. Have fun reading it. <laughs> but Amazing. It, it, yeah, I, I don't think it, it went anywhere. I think it was like floated and never got passed or so, or something yeah. like that. But the ideal was to use some sort of federal control to control what public schools you're allowed to teach, which is yeah. interesting from people who are supposed to be all about small local government. I'm sorry. Aren't these the people who are like leaving their jobs because of censorship so they can go say whatever they want on Substack? Basically. Who knows? It's all freedom of speech is a yeah. It, it's all gotten complicated, but yeah. but yeah. So the, I think there was a, a goal that these things would be taught in public schools. But I think it is also important to understand that Ferris's long game does not have public schools, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and it's, it's it all goes back to like remember the fact that like American homeschooling, you know, really took off as a white flight response to desegregation. Yep. And that's actually yep. the way that private schools took off too. And it's mm -hmm. actually, it's very interesting. In my dissertation, I traced this. The Dutch Calvinists background of, of Betsy DeVos, actually, the Dutch Calvinist influence in evangelicalism by the 1950s had some evangelical like theologians and leaders convinced that they needed a project of public education, or uh, needed private schools. The argument being that public schools, by being devoid of God in their, general textbooks and this was a time when you still had school prayer but because the subjects didn't mention god that it's teaching children that god can be on the periphery of their lives that it's a prayer at the beginning and that's it and it doesn't matter to the rest of their lives but the problem was that this idea never took off into creating private schools in the in the 50s because the white evangelical lay people were perfectly happy with the public schools Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after you had desegregation that all of a sudden there were so many more people interested in private schools that then all of these, you know, evangelical churches started creating private schools. And then later they would argue, oh, no, it was these other things. But it's like, sorry, no. the, timing, the timing is the timing. You can't. No, we, can't, saw, we no. saw your racism. It's 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 not hidden. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you guys think that you are very good at this, uh, this, this anti-racist cosplay. You but keep actually, the quiet parts out loud. You keep, you yeah. keep flipping out a character here. Yeah, yeah so yeah, all, all that stuff. Which says yeah. something yeah. about what they actually think about this country, too. It's just like, come on, you can't, you can't divorce your education from your segregation. Maybe you shouldn't be writing this commission. Okay, so let's let's take this um, a little bit more, you know, big picture for a second. So this is obviously not going anywhere. This has been archived. This is like it was up for you know, one. Day. This is this is dead in the water. But um, going forward, how what kind of things, you know, this is not. Let me back up. I have this whole conspiracy theory, um, which is as I said on the podcast or in the like chat session last night like my second favorite conspiracy theory of all time my first favorite is that birds are fake the birds are psyops um but this <laughs> is like the my first my second favorite conspiracy theory is one that i came up with myself after reading antonio gramsci in a uh like 
grad school class and I hadn't run into his stuff before and I was reading his prison notebooks and it was really interesting because he has this like this whole like theory about why Marxism wasn't taking off in Western Europe and it was you know the the capitalism was working too well and so people were not uncomfortable enough to be able to 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 divest from um, that system. And so he had this like outline of like, okay, so you have to take a totally different strategy in these like successful capitalist economies to um, get people to see what the problem is. And you have to take on seven spheres of culture and address the ideology mm-hmm. and assumptions in each of them separately in order to have like effective cultural change. And I was like, where have I heard this before? That sounds a lot like a college I know of. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a college I know of. It sounds like Vision Forum. It sounds like Bill Bright. Uh, I, uh, it just, it's like, this is everything. This Francis Schaefer. Like, and so I was like, these guys had to have read this. Like, and so I looked up, like, because each of these people who have promoted this exact same idea, but for like Christian cultural change mm-hmm. to like, you know, r- like establish Christian hegemony in the United States, like, they all have the exact same like plan. It's the seven spheres of culture. And, and so I was like, they have to have just stolen this from Gramsci. Like they have to have. And so I looked up like when each of them said they, they came up with it and and you'll, you'll laugh because several of them were like, I had a vision and angel showed me this. Or like, I had a dream. (laughs) Like, they like, I just, they read a book. Yeah. It just sprang from their head fully formed. And I'm like, you don't want to credit a Marxist for this. And sure enough, the year that the years that, the dates that they all came up with it pr- track pretty closely with the first English translation of the prison notebooks uh, by Antonio Gramsci and which is where this, this idea is. So like it was written in Italian. He was, he, he spent a whole, you know, the end of his life in prison after Mussolini, I guess the whole thing, but, but, but these people who were all like econ undergrads were coming up with this. <laughs> Just out right. of the blue. And I'm Spontaneously. like, no, you read this for class and then you adopted it and you didn't want to credit a Marxist. So yep. when we see this kind of material, this is like the direct result of implementing that kind of game plan over the last 30, 40 years um, in American history. And so one of the things I want to ask Rachel is like going forward, um, they're going to keep trying this. Where do you expect them to to pivot to now that they don't have uh, control of the education state and state department? Well, I think it's important to note that in most cases, uh, history standards and what is taught in history classes is dictated at the state level. And then there's some influence at the local level. Uh, So in my state, Illinois, for example, um, the state board of education now requires the all public schools to teach the to teach LGBT history in the classrooms as part of the history curriculum, and my public school district has been implementing that, and all public school districts in Illinois are required to. Um, but I think I think the conservatives are very good at waging battles at that level, and so yes. control of state history uh, state education boards that make these sorts of decisions, you know, because if you can dictate. For example, that all public schools in Oklahoma have to teach the 1776 project as part of their civics program. Like, 
in theory, you can they can do that. They can require that. So um, conservatives, uh, unfortunately, have been very good traditionally at local and state organizing, which is something that progressives uh, too often can drop the ball on. Which really I think we've learned, that, honestly. Yeah. Well, I think and Georgia pointed out recently how much we could maybe do things differently if we chose. So I think <laughs> it's. A, I think everyone should be paying attention to their local school board, which does have you know, a, a degree of authority uh, over this as well. That's not at all incidental, but also their state board of education. And, you know, you should know who is setting the standards for textbooks in your state. I don't think most people know that. So I suspect that that is where they'll take this. But I also suspect that, you know, conservatives are just going to also continue their fight against the project of public education itself and trying to splinter that as well. I think that if you if you're unfamiliar with how this this can work, uh, looking at the history of abstinence only sex education and how it became so dominant in the 90s um, would be a really good starting point to as a case study for like what to look for in terms of these kinds of grassroots organized like state and local level like curriculum corruption. And I bet you're also going to see, like, you know, states can ban the teaching of the 1619 project in schools, or, you know, there's going to be various constraints on what they can and can't do. It's going to depend. But there's a lot that state board of education can do. And if think about it. It was state board of boards of education that ensured that students were taught, you know, two different versions of history mm -hmm. in, in 1900 and in 1920. You know, it, these boards have always had a great deal of ability to shape what history students are taught. So yeah. it, that's definitely a place to be watching. Ooh, so much. A I'm so glad you were able to come on and talk to us about this. I've, I've enjoyed it. This is something I'm very passionate about. I, I hate it when history is done badly. And I also, I just want to reiterate, I think the distrust of expertise is just huge here. It's, and it's everywhere. It's explains so much, I think, about what we see in our society. It even explains why Donald Trump was elected, because, you know, you wouldn't want someone who, like, has actual experience being a politician, being president. Right. Let's try someone with zero expertise in this area, in this job. And it, it, right. it went great, obviously, but, um, as in Fairly. not great. But, but it's all a piece of that. And I, I just, it frustrates me too. And I, it frustrates me to see my own um, expertise discounted by, you know, even these same communities, like, the, you know, the insistence that this guy, you know, this is the definitive history of George Washington because he never read any historians. It's like, that's not how I would no. do it. No. <laughs> Context so, is important. Rachel, where can uh, where can people find Dr. Coleman if they want to get in touch with you? Well, I am on Twitter, and I believe I have my DMs on Twitter open. And I I never do Facebook. Facebook is evil. I posted that on Facebook because I wanted to post it on Facebook, but mostly I'm not on Facebook. So I, I am on Twitter, and I do tweet about history. I also currently tweet a lot about the pandemic. But I mean, that will fair. end and there will be more history, I promise. And you're currently the uh, executive director. Yes, right. I'm the executive director of the Coalition for Responsible Home Education and uh, where we encourage people to homeschool without fake history and all yeah. that stuff. <laughs> and also consult experts. Like, yes. you know. Yes. 
that well, that's one of the things that we say a lot is I think because you see this within homeschooling is I I saw this just as a side note the dismiss the dismissal of educational expertise also this idea that all teachers learn in teachers college is basically just crowd control and since I'm homeschooling I don't need any of that and it's like no maybe not maybe maybe expertise means a little bit of something and you should like read things I, I don't know it's just. I, I really, I, I will get up on this expert thing again and again, because I, I think we, I, experts are not always right, and my parents taught me to question everything, which I then did, including <laughs> their <laughs> things, but I think it's important to understand that somebody is an expert who has, has really put a lot of effort into studying something and learning about something, and probably knows some things that are worth knowing, even if that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't like have to go with everything they say automatically, I'm not, I'm not but it, like it matters. It matters that you studied something and that you know things. That matters. Yes. Yes. This is why we had you on. <laughs> Thank you so yes, much. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys. It was a good time. It was Bye. so great. Oh, I love Rachel. I'm so glad she came on. Finally. <laughs> Me too. It was so, so good to have her on. I'm so glad. Uh that we finally figured out a way to do it. And also this is just like so good. Like I'm really glad that we had her on for this because I feel like her perspective as a historian is just like so crucial to understanding <laughs> the fucking report. I know. And, it's, and so why it's, so, it's so important. so uh, important. Yeah. The last thing that I want to um, kind of end the report talk on is at the end of their appendix, appendix, appendices, um, <laughs> appendices, appendicitis, uh, <laughs> for in, in the third appendix, when they're talking about how bad and horrible and awful identity politics is, the the last uh, like two sentences is well, I'll just read the whole the whole section because that'll make more sense. So, fourth, there there were four points in this screed against identity politics fourth identity politics activists are often often are radicals whose political program is fundamentally incompatible not only with the principles of the declaration of independence but also the rule of law embodied by the united states constitution antagonism no. to the, <laughs> right maybe, maybe right the law is racist Antagonism to the creed expressed in the declaration seems not an option, but a necessary part of their strategy. When activists are discussing seemingly innocuous campaigns to promote diversity, they are often aiming for fundamental structural change. And I'm just here to say that is correct. We are advocating for structural change and they don't like it we're trying and they to can we're try. get us to the actual lofty ideals that were set forth that have never been realized in this yep. country yep oh so anyway um, um we are like, radicals if you liked um kieran's little moment of deep dive line by line analysis we that's what we did last night with rachel and we recorded that um for patrons only so for this you know most of this document um we couldn't quite get through it because it was so we did we didn't make we it to the appendixes to but, but we did make it through most of the not appendix so if you're a patron and you want to get that video it's in the slack and we'll put it up on the you know patrons only post but uh just just a fyi like we 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 did 
a whole lot more. We spent two hours going through the first part of this packet, so you didn't have to, but you can watch us. (laughs) Uh, So this is just the summary afterward. Yeah, yeah. This really, like, there is so much in here that we could literally, like, dedicate an entire season just to go through each part and point out all of the, like, dog whistles and stuff and how they are very very much avoiding saying that queer and trans people exist slash are included in anything oh god it's just so bad it's just and it's like i i understand that like one of the reasons we do this podcast is not everybody can can code switch and recognize the the you know subtext in this but I feel like it's so overt. <laughs> I'm like, do, it, like yeah. do we even need to? Because it's like, it's just front and it's, center there. But I think yeah. it, maybe it is. Maybe it's not as obvious to everybody. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. And and and, and like the thing that we have here uh, is the context. Because we grew up with Michael Ferris teaching and saying these things. And like, none of this is new like, I mean, a lot of the homeschool textbooks that, you know, we talk about a Becca and Bob Jones and stuff like these are the foundational texts that would have been the uh, Southern edition of the textbooks that, yep. that Rachel was talking about. So like he is like a Becca and Bob Jones spend so much time talking about like enslaved people like loved being enslaved and it was great for them and only a handful of people were cruel and that was unfair mm. and you know the civil war was all about states rights and 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 just like on and yep. on and on and on where it's like i'm sorry like it's just it's just completely irresponsible you know but the social studies from those curriculums are widely used in the homeschool community and yep. this is this is just a distillation of that this is why it was so funny Going back to that tweet that that one person <laughs> was just like, so oh, no, we have to stop it from getting to the homeschoolers. And I'm like, do you have you talked to a homeschool alumni about their homeschool curriculum literally any single one time? And did you see, <laughs> like it, this is not this was not a follow up, but like it felt it felt like a follow up. Do you see Matt Walsh's tweet? Fuck Matt Walsh. Oh, yes, about how everyone should like homeschool and outbreed people, outbreed the I, left. It's like, you know, like this will be, this will protect like Christian ideology. And, and we're all like, all the homeschoolers are just like, question mark, honey. It's like blink dot gif. Like, yes. <laughs> we, I'm sorry. I was, I was yeah. just like, I've got news. Where did I've you got from, so much girl? news. There's like an entire cohort of us who are in like our 30s now or close to 30 and we did not do that thing that he said we would do. Like this actively backfired. Yeah. Turns out if you like try to control children with an iron fist um the event and like religious adult. abuse and also are like well you have to think critically because the left is infiltrating education and it's awful and then like you you can't undo once you critical teach a child thinking. to ask questions you can't stop yeah yeah <laughs> So, oh, you know, man. Oh, man. go try it. I encourage people to try it. I, know, I don't Karen, actually. We don't want to have to baby. I know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I do not actually want people to try this. It has been tried. It has failed. But that's really cute. 
yeah <laughs> fuck around and find out guys but like yeah. I'm, not, I'm not cleaning up your mess this time no no we have a podcast they for this reason thank you matt walsh Oh, y'all. Thank you so much for your support and for listening and joining us um, while we talk about these funny, weird, small worlds that, you know, I am exist honestly, and influence culture. I'm so excited that, like, the the scale of this is so much smaller now because it's not like, oh, yeah, and then, you know, Trump is going to sign an executive order that you know, makes this mandatory for everything all the time, everywhere. It's like, we can, we can, I feel like we have enough space now. Physically bracing for the backlash, but, but yeah, you know, we, Oh, the backlash is going to be hard. We got four years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's why we're here. And now we can focus on like avoiding or like countering that in the next. Yeah. We're not playing like immediate emergency triage. We're doing like, building antidotal yeah how do we stop this from happening again thank you for being on this ride with us so if you are new and you want to find us on the socials we everything can be found at kitchentablecult.com our patron is uh patreon.com forward slash kitchen table cult pod pod we had to find different urls for everything i can never remember which is which yeah and if you join on the Patreon, you can see that video we recorded with Rachel last night and uh, hang out in the Slack with us. We've got a really cool group down hanging out there. It's really fun. It's nice if you want to hang out with people while you can't hang out with people in person. Lots of cute, cool animal pics. Yeah. Um, yeah. As always, thank you, Dave, for editing this together and uh to the heavens for the music that we have on this podcast from their albums to nazo and yeah we'll we'll catch you next time thanks so much for listening and being here take care of yourself drink some water bye wear your mask (laughs) (laughs) always wear your mask wear your mask bye bye